Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan, along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Steve, we are chatting today as the longest government shutdown in American history continues. And Donald Trump seems as unconcerned as ever about the real life consequences of this government shutdown that, if you remember, no one thought a shutdown was going to happen. And then right before Christmas, Donald Trump had to create a self-inflicted crisis. It's just a moment, at least, that speaks so profoundly to the brokenness of our politics, our political system. It has ceased to work. I mean, how many times – I've actually lost count. Uh, has there been a shutdown in recent years over, over basically nothing? And, and this one included. Trump has backed himself into a corner here. He went out and celebrated the fact how glad he would be to shut down the government. And here we are and we see real – real effects starting to accrue to the economy, real costs. We see government workers who are unpaid doing their duty, doing their service from uh, TSA agents uh, to State Department personnel, as you pointed out earlier, in dangerous posts. Most outrageously, first time in the history of the country, members of the armed forces on active duty uh, have gone without pay. The United States Coast Guard is not being paid. You have soldiers who have now been deployed to the border. Their deployment has been extended for a year. So you have that disaster going on, that other element of the self-inflicted crisis. And at this point, I honestly do not see an exit ramp for Donald Trump where he can save any face at all. And I would certainly not predict what he's going to do because he seems so volatile and really just flying by the seat of his pants and not approaching this with any rationality whatsoever. He doesn't seem to, quite frankly, understand the human consequences. You know, Not only that it's you know, men and women at the State Department who aren't getting their pay, but also the contractors at the State Department, the janitors who keep the building running, who haven't gotten paid. And how a month without a paycheck in America, the stat that you use frequently talk, you know, about how most Americans do not have $400 in savings, that this is a real problem. And Donald Trump is painting himself into this corner of appearing like the emperor with no clothes and like he is just so absolutely and completely disconnected from the concerns of real Americans. And he's starting to make their lives harder and having everyone experience the pain of his tantrum. It's the ultimate example of the big guy screwing the little guy. And this is just consistent with Trump's behavior all through his life. When he stiffed the contractors in the casinos or the job sites. He's a con man. He's a grifter. And he's always stuck it to the little guy. And so you have government workers, hardworking people. You know, they get up every day. They have children that they have dreams for that have piano lessons, or maybe they're saving for a summer vacation or for a college education, or they're struggling to keep their kids in private school. People trying to fulfill the American dream who get up, work hard, honorably, do the right thing, play by the rules, and they're and they're utterly getting screwed here. 
by a totally broken system and a, and a president who revels in the cruelty and he's utterly indifferent to the suffering. And you think about the grotesqueness, uh, looking at the scandal, hundreds of scandals at this point, but the scandal around the heist of what appears to be millions of dollars out of the inaugural committee where there's no good explanation where the money went. And this gilded class, this Trump class of Americans shafting the little guy, makeup rooms, $10,000, hundreds of thousands of dollars of profligate material. A calligrapher on hand just in case there were any last minute additions. It was $500 for hair and makeup for waiters and waitresses because physical appearances of those who serve Donald Trump, apparently that matters more than hardworking, decent Americans being able to feed their families. But Steve, I just don't, if you, let's, let's game this out. What is a face-saving path for Donald Trump at this stage in the game? Or is there even a path? How can he get out of this disaster? I'm frankly concerned that this is going to go on for a while. It could go on for a long while, and what's worrying about it is when you hear people say, well, the way out of it is for him to declare a national emergency. And so when you have a manufactured crisis that's formed by a combination like a thunderstorm system coming together, low and high-pressure systems, we have high-pressure systems of malice and incompetence colliding together, causing this government shutdown, abjectly stupid— the lunacy that goes on under that Capitol Dome, really knowing no description, all of this shutdown, all of it for multiple times in, in, in multiple years, a manufactured crisis, which he then says is the reason why I need to operate extra constitutionally to assume powers to deal with the manufactured crisis. And as has been pointed out, this is out of the autocratic and totalitarian handbook. This is what goes on in the Philippines with Duarte. This is what goes on with Erdogan in Turkey. This is what goes on with Putin. This is what goes on with Orban in Hungary. And we see all over the world these rising autocracies, this rejection of the democratic liberalism of the post-World War II order and all of it's happening at this moment in time where politics is in chaos in London and the United Kingdom. Politics is in chaos in the United States and Washington, D.C. Democracy, American democracy, which used to be admired and respected around the world, looks like a joke. We're a laughingstock. We look like a banana republic. In the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, there were tough times in this country, but we were admired around the world. People looked and admired and respected and wanted to emulate the American model. Who around the world would look at this and say, we want to be like that? And the surrendering of that moral authority in this era is just an unspeakable tragedy of the Trump era and the complicity of Republicans in Congress chiefly that have caused it. Well, instability within our own borders certainly is not making the world more secure, and it's not making our allies feel comforted that we are there for them. Has our alliance, that Article 5 of NATO that Donald Trump just can't repeat, 
is tested. And, you know, the New York Times reporting that Donald Trump still questions if America should be part of NATO. And you have used a World War II, uh, an analogy about the run-up and the rise of the Third Reich to describe the phase one manufactured crisis, the crisis at the border in the run-up to the election. You've described Reichstag fire phase one. Where are we now? There's a reluctance to talk about the lessons of the 1930s and the 1940s because there's been so many sloppy and intellectually uh, dishonest and, and frankly immoral comparisons of of Nazism to whatever political objection or opponent you may have. The labeling of George W. Bush as a Nazi, for example. And so when people go on and they make Nazi analogies and comparisons, they dishonor the memories of the millions killed in history's greatest crime. The Holocaust was, was so serious, such a defining moment of evil in the totality of human history that it begs and can't tolerate any comparison. There is no comparison. It's a, it's a crime that, that is fundamentally different even from other genocides. But the line goes too far when that is dissuasive from talking about some of the important lessons of that period of time, appeasing aggressive totalitarians, for example, but also watching how an autocrat who turned out to be the most evil human being of all time assumed power through democratic processes and how he used democratic processes and the weaknesses of the institutions against themselves to seize power. And the moment that defined that is the Reichstag fire, where Hitler used the pretense of that fire to blame the communists, make illegal political parties across Germany, and essentially assume absolute power over the country. Now, it's not a spot-on comparison to the United States, and of course that can't happen here in the same way, but we have to understand how outside the norms, a president manufacturing a crisis to declare an emergency for the purposes of seizing power is in the world's oldest constitutional republic. It's as unacceptable as it is dangerous. And that we have so few political leaders in Washington, D.C. who have any sense of history, who have any sense of danger. And as I've said over the course of the last two years, what history teaches us is that fascism didn't rise in the 30s because it was strong, but rather because democracy was weak and corrupted and hollowed out. And when we look at our democracy and the state of it, when we look at the craveness, the self-interest, the corruption, both material and intellectual, the tribalism, when we look and consider all of it, we have to understand that our American democracy is in peril, not from threats from outside of the country, but from a rot within. And that is what our founders always warned us about, is that if the country were to fall, it would not fall from forces from the outside, but rather from a virus on the inside. 
And when you look at where we are, you have to be concerned about that. Well, and I think it's an interesting historical parallel to note this week on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's 90th birthday on Martin Luther King Day as we commemorate Reverend King's great legacy, the role of my, of white moderates and how everyone during the civil rights movement was waiting for white moderates to finally step up and do the right thing and the silence and the complicity. And that was something that Reverend King wrote about so movingly in his letter from the Birmingham jail. I still think a lot of the country is hoping for Republican moderates to step up and take on Donald Trump. Are we getting any closer to that happening? Because I certainly don't really see it moving in that direction yet. I think there's two answers to your question. And so today you saw 10 Republican senators vote with the Democrats to maintain sanctions against Oleg Deripaska and the Kremlin. And Deripaska famously once said, that he sees no differences between his business interests and the state interests of the Russian Federation. And let's also point out that Deripaska passed along information. It went to him from his longtime associate, Konstantin Kalimnik, from Paul Manafort in Madrid. Deripaska was all over the 2016 election. And I was surprised, Steve, that Mitt Romney didn't vote for those sanctions. Extremely surprised. Absolutely. But what will eventually happen here with regard to the shutdown, and if you look at the size of the repudiation of Republicans across the country, 40 House seats across state legislative races and governor's houses, and then you look at the races where Democrats were knocking on the door, you look at Trump's deteriorating political position, you look at a deteriorating economy, you know, Republicans increasingly are going to be like the person standing on the edge of a building watching the 10th person jump off the fifth story building and fall to their desk. Hey, do you want to be 11? How about 12? Another one? Another one? Right. And so at the end of the day, Republicans are going to break here because Donald Trump is going to break them. And at the end of the day, the creatures, the genus of the human species, that is our federal politicians, they have finely honed instincts for self-preservation. And, and at the end of the day, they will throw Donald Trump overboard, not because it's the right thing to do, not because he's incompetent, not because he's unfit, not because he's damaging the country, not for any reason of principle at all, because it'll hurt their chances at reelection. And that's ultimately how the government, I suspect, is going to reopen, unless it's reopened on the declaration of an emergency, which will ultimately be repudiated by the courts. If Donald Trump chooses to go the path of a national emergency just to get the government open and to end the shutdown because it's the only face-saving path that he sees, do you see Republicans backing him? I think it will be a defining moment, at least, because it will be a moment that illuminates in this new era of American politics who is fidelitous to democracy, who is fidelitous to the values of the Enlightenment, the vision of the founders, of men like Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass, who viewed the promise of America as for everybody. The story of the country is the story of the struggle the struggle to move closer to the perfection 
of the idea that all of us are created equal and that we're here for the pursuit of happiness. And we'll know who is faithful to that and who is not. We'll know who would easily be if they were Turks standing next to Erdogan, not on the streets fighting for human dignity and democracy. And so it will be an illuminating moment. We will, I think, have an opportunity to see Lord Acton's warning come to fruition, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we'll see the, the, the corruption of the political class in that, in that moment, uh, should he do that. But, but it will be a dire threat uh, to the constitutional order because for an American president to manufacture out of whole cloth an emergency, to lie about it, to have it propagandized, to have the instruments of the state lie about it, to have complicit news organizations functioning as state media to amplify it, to see that happening, and then to see an act by an American president to seize power that he is not constitutionally granted to take an action, we should understand the deadly seriousness of this. This will have Madison and Hamilton and Washington and Jefferson rolling over in their graves. And we have to remember that ultimately this is a fight over money, a fight that Donald Trump said, oh, don't worry about it because Mexico will pay for the wall. And Steve, you really cracked me up on Nicole Wallace's show a couple weeks ago when you asked, where are the pesos? So where are the pesos and why are more congressional leaders not reminding Americans that Donald Trump's original promise was that Mexico would pay for the wall? There are no pesos, Elise, and there <laughs> never was and there, there never will be. And that's the thing here. It's a con. And what I said that day is that the people have come to see the wizard. And the wizard had promised them a great wall of Trump, a magnificent wall of concrete paid for by the Mexicans. And he said it by my count, and I'm old enough to remember, at least 150 billion times over the course of the campaign. At every utterance, he talked about the wall that Mexico would pay for. And I just don't understand when Chuck Schumer is sitting there, why he doesn't say, hey, Mr. President, I think you got me in the wrong meeting. I think this is the meeting with the Mexican ambassador. I think you should look at Nick Mulvaney and say, hey, chief, like, I think this is the wrong meeting. I think you, this, this is the Mexican ambassador meeting because you said Mexico was going to pay for the wall. Now, there's two things you can't fix in life. You can't fix stupid and you can't fix crazy. And the truth of the matter is, if you're dumb enough to believe that Mexico was going to pay for the Great Wall of Trump on the border over the course of the campaign, well, guess what? It's never going to happen. It's completely impractical. It's completely unnecessary. There is zero illegal immigration coming across the southern border. Most illegal immigration comes from visa overstays. This is about Trump's ego. This is about this nonsensical campaign promise, and this is a now a fundamental principle from which the people who stand against Trump cannot back up. In a fight, there's only two ways to win. And make no mistake, this is one of those fights. You can bring your opponent to submission, 
think Germany and Japan at the end of the Second World War, or you can make your opponent lose their will to fight. Think of the United States and Vietnam. Trump's last hope here is to break on the backs of the human suffering he is causing the opposition's will to fight. But if he breaks their will to fight, what they will be bending to is Donald Trump's warped and dystopian, dishonest view of the world. It will validate that Donald Trump can make up and spin out of whole cloth racist, divisive conspiracies where none exist for the purposes of dividing the country, take the country hostage, shut down the government and be rewarded for it in a victory that he will then rebroadcast to his base, proving that, in fact, the big lie was not a lie at all. And that victory for him will come at a cost that is unimaginable for everybody else because what it will do is incentivize him to do it again and again and again with higher stakes each time. Well, Nancy Pelosi certainly re-entered the game in her position of leadership and decided to let Donald Trump know that she isn't just going to let him get away with it. And everyone had looked to Trump's State of the Union as hopefully the time frame, the maximum time frame that this disaster of a government shutdown would end. And as it increasingly looks unlikely that it would have ended by that time frame, January 28th, Nancy Pelosi said, you know what? I'm not going to give you the audience. I'm not going to give you the chamber. I'm not going to have secret security work without pay. I'm not going to allow you your number one drug, which is adulation and television time. Well, what we see is a political leader who knows how to exercise power, the Speaker of the House, a constitutional officer, the leader of a co-equal branch of government, asserting at long last the prerogatives of the Congress of the United States, the Article One branch of government. And... I think when we think about Nancy Pelosi, and you know, certainly, you know, to me, you know, I, and every, she's a nice lady in every occasion I've ever had to to meet her, and I've had the pleasure of of knowing her daughters, uh, who are really nice people. There's all sorts of issues I I disagree with her on from a policy perspective, but it's so gratifying to see an actual adult who knows how to yield political power for the purposes of defending democratic norms and the American constitutional order from the threat in the Oval Office. And so right now, to see her stand up and to stand up effectively and to see somebody with guts and determination finally hold the line against the excesses of this, I think is a gratifying moment for millions of Americans who repudiate this toxic presidency. I think there's an element of risk for Nancy Pelosi to personalize the battle a little too much and make it a Pelosi versus Trump matchup. But I really think that's quite minimal when you consider what she has to lose if Democrats fold to Trump. They absolutely cannot give in on funding the wall because their base would go nuts. 58% of Americans, around 58%, 
do not support the wall. You look at Trump supporters. I cannot tell you how many Trump supporters I've talked to over the last two years who say they only see the wall as a symbol. They know it will never get done. They never expect for the wall to be built. These are rank and file Trump voters that I've talked to through the Ashcroft in America project going all across the country. And so you have Donald Trump's most radical side of his base driving this shutdown. You have the cable news host who really need a wall because they feel so imperiled and so threatened. And so you have the cable news presidency. And that is playing out day to day as millions of Americans are suffering the economic repercussions from this haphazard and self-inflicted crisis. Oh, absolutely. And I'm just listening to you right there. And I was just thinking about former presidents of the United States. And when I've been lucky enough to have the occasion to go to the libraries, um, from Nixon's library to FDR's to Truman's to Reagan's um, to Clinton's to, to the Bush libraries, what monument does Donald Trump leave behind in his presidency at the halfway point in? What, what, what conceivable good thing will be said about him on the occasion of a portrait hanging in the National Gallery or in the White House, which is going to happen? What, what, what is it possibly, assuming he, he serves out his term, that the, that the new president will say to him on his way to the Capitol in the limo? Will they even ride together? Does Trump get handcuffed? immediately after the ceremony or do they give him a day or two to report it is astounding when you look at the degree to which a couple years in we see the suffering unleashed on america's agricultural sector by his uh profoundly stupid tariffs and trade war with china you look at the degree to which he has stressed out the western alliance called the fundamental mission of nato into question which makes the world much more dangerous. You look at his mismanagement in the Middle East, the moral rot around issues like Khashoggi and the murder of a U.S. resident with U.S. citizen children by the Saudi autocrat. Everywhere you look, you see indecency. You see meanness. You see, you see corruption. You see greed. And all of the qualities that the greatest people in the country's history have all fought against. It, what, what, what will they say about Trump? And, and what will people say 50 years from now, looking back on this period, about the people who stood next to him and were apologists for all of this? And, you know, I really believe that 2019, unfortunately, and I don't mean to be pessimistic because I do believe in the resiliency of the country, and I'm optimistic about its future long term. But I think 2019 is the year where the bill comes due on this. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a who's a Trump supporter, and it was about a month ago. And, you know, and I said to him, I said, well, how's the stock market working out for you? Because that was that was the reason that they gave for voting for Trump, that they well, the economy's doing good. The economy's working for me. And I say, you know, the thing about it is, can you drive home 
with too much to drink one night and get away with it with nothing bad happening. You shouldn't do it. It's reckless. But people do, and they get away with it. Can you do it two nights in a row? What about a week in a row? How about a month? A year? Two years? What about when you get into the third year of it? And I think we're in the third year of it. And I think we've been very lucky. But when you look at what's going on in Washington, D.C., at least, can you imagine? Can you imagine if this president, this country right now, was faced with an actual real crisis? That if 9-11 happened right now? That if something really bad happened tomorrow? Can you imagine? And I think your point about the economy is extremely important when you're talking about Trump's political support, because another frequent refrain that I hear from Trump supporters is that they can't stand the tweets. They can't stand the language. They can't stand the nastiness and meanness. They have no particular affinity for the man. But as long as the economy is strong, they're willing to forgive it. But you have just this week, Donald Trump's own economist have doubled projections of the economic damage of this shutdown. And it sure looks like we're heading into a recession to me, though I'm no economist. I will caveat that. But I don't feel optimistic about the economy. And if other Americans aren't feeling optimistic, that's not a good thing because uh, Donald Trump's bravado about the economy actually has been fairly helpful to a point in shoring up consumer confidence. I share your doubt that 2019 is going to be a kind, gentle year of American achievement and sweeping rhetoric. Uh, There might be sweeping rhetoric from Donald Trump of the extreme variety, but this isn't going to be, uh, you know, exactly a stand up for your fellow Americans year. All of the conditions are there to say that this is going to just be a downright nuts year. Not only do you have Donald Trump's legal problems, which I might add, all of these issues, you know, be it the Trump Foundation, be it the Trump Presidential Inauguration Committee, his foreign policy, they all have the intersection with his personal profit. And somehow those hotels seem to make it into every story and people staying at his hotels and Donald Trump making money. But I think that 2019 is going to be nuts just because of Donald Trump and his actions and his past actions, but because of the 31 flavors and more we're still counting. I think we're, you know, in up to over 400 registered Democrats who want to run for president. So what do you make at this stage of the Democratic field and the options of someone to unseat Donald Trump? Well, I think it's going to be the largest field in um, the recent history of the Democratic Party it might be the largest field in the history of the Democratic Party. We'll certainly have more declared credible female candidates uh, than in any election cycle in American history. It used to be the case that presidential campaigns ended when they ran out of money. And they ran out of money after they didn't finish in the top three in Iowa or the top two in New Hampshire. It didn't come down the finals through the shoot, really culminating with the Super Tuesday primaries. What's changed about it? 
presidential campaign today really needs to have money to get on an airplane, needs to have one rich super PAC donor who can keep the messaging aspect of it afloat, and then have the ability to perform on the public stage. And essentially, what the Democrats are going to be doing is holding an audition over the course of the next year. Who who do you want to put in the ring against Donald Trump? Who's the best Democrat? Who's the best fighter? And you're going to see, I think, a number of different approaches. I think there's several currents in the Democratic Party right now. Um, I think there's a left current. Uh, there's a there's a current that that's pulling the Democratic Party to the left. There is an intolerance in wings of the Democratic Party uh, for any deviation uh, from that progressive agenda. Uh, a real unwillingness that's not so different from aspects of the Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party, uh, zero compromise wing. Uh, there is a uh, there's a current in the Democratic Party for new. Uh, for someone who we haven't seen on the public stage for the last 30 years or last 15 or last 10, or has been ubiquitous over the last five or six. I think that there's a current for young. Uh, I think that you saw some of the tensions. What really you saw in the debate about Nancy Pelosi's speakership was about the reality that Democratic leadership in the House are all approaching 80 years old. You see a lot of chafing by younger members saying, hey, uh, it's time for generational turnover. So I, I think you'll see all those currents play out. You look at the demographics in the primary. It seems to me, if I if I look at the field right now, I see a star in the making in Kamala Harris. California's moved forward. She's going to be able to raise a lot of money. Uh, an African-American candidate uh, has every potential to do well demographically. In the structure of the race is it, is it as they head into the uh, southern states? I agree with that. And the Democratic Party has seated the South for so long. And I think that Senator Harris is the kind of candidate who could really resonate in a state like Georgia and a state like Florida. Even in Mississippi, you look at how close that race was. You look at how Alabama managed to flip a Senate seat. And she really seems like a candidate who could have a lot of appeal. She's somebody who I see bridges a a divide in the Democratic uh, Party uh, because she's a progressive, but she was a prosecutor. And that says something to her. It, it moderates her um, in the eyes, I think, of moderate Democratic voters. And so you, you can see Kamala Harris assembling something that's approximate to the Obama coalition, perhaps. Another candidate that I that 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 I think is an interesting candidate, and I see a lane for is uh, Tim Ryan, is the congressman from uh, Youngstown, Ohio, uh, who's been in the House for 16 years. Uh, represents a Midwest district, a working class district. I, I think that you know I I've used this analogy. I think there's three strains of this in the Democratic Party, I, and and I've used this and I've I've shared this thought with with a couple of them, including a couple of candidates running for president. I said there's so imagine there's a building site in Manhattan and it's a 70 story building. First Democratic candidate walks by, and they just don't see anybody at all working on it. They're just invisible people. The second Democratic candidate walks by that site and they see the men and women working on it, working on the welding, uh, driving the trucks, mixing the cement. And frankly, what they see are deplorables. They see Trump voters. 
Um, they see people with lunch pails and tattoos and coarse language and people that wouldn't be invited out to the summer party in, at the beach in the Hamptons. The third Democrat walks by that tower going up and they see the people working there and they see them through a prism of admiration and respect. They see hardworking Americans. They see people doing dangerous jobs. They see people welding, riveting at 700 feet in the air, doing jobs that not a million years could they ever do. And they have admiration for it. And that was the party of Harry Truman and, and John Kennedy. And, and I think Tim Ryan is that type of candidate. I think he has the ability, he's in his 40s, to be able to connect to that Midwestern voter He's been in Congress for long enough to be able to indict it, to run as an outsider. Rhetorically, he could say, I got there when I was 30 years old. And, you know, from the perspective of a father of a young family in my early 40s, I, I see a lane for I see a lane for him. And I think Beto O'Rourke will be interesting. And I think the fight that's taking place right now on Twitter, on social media, between the forces most closely aligned between Warren, Sanders, and O'Rourke is, is really, really interesting. And that's where you see really the ideological uh, fight and intensity in the Democratic primary coming with people trying to push Beto O'Rourke out of his progressive positioning from the Senate race into something of a Trump Democrat. And, and that's really the, the Sanders side of it, trying to clean up that ideological space, hold on to it which is under threat from Warren. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see who gets in, what lanes they pick. How does Hickenlooper come out of the gate? Very successful governor of Colorado. Uh, does Terry McAuliffe, representing the vestigal Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, does he get off the ground? Please, please, no. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Steve, big picture, the most important point that you just made was about Tim Ryan and not looking down on voters. And I think that this is a fundamental issue that so many politicians today and in 2016 missed, which is people you look at with contempt don't vote for you. They can see it. They can see it in how you speak to them and how you address them. And if you have contempt they aren't going to vote for you to represent them. Maybe we should do that at least like as a weekly feature. We could go through the candidates as if they were a stock or <laughs> we were we were about to put money down on them in the London betting parlors. But, but right now I'd put some money on the board. I'd put some money on Harris. I'd make a bet on Ryan. And Amy Klobuchar I would put early money on also given her strong performance in those Kavanaugh hearings and – I was surprised when I was in Minnesota back in October by how many Trump supporters that we spoke to. They said, you know, we really like her. She's done a great job. She might be very liberal and a Democrat, but she does have a lot of support, at least with some Minnesota Republicans, which always surprises me. Steve, it's going to be a long, long campaign season, so there will be plenty more for us to discuss. Absolutely. We'll be right back with the Words Matter Library. 
This week for the Words Matter Audible Library, we wanted to hear from Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in his own words because his words are so powerful. First, we will start with the seminal letter from Birmingham Jail. And Martin Luther King wrote this when he was put in jail in Alabama for protesting during the civil rights movement. And there were religious leaders who told him to maybe take it down a notch. And he addressed their impatience with his impatience in this beautiful, important letter. And let's take a few of the most important passages of that just to dissect a bit. I want to start with how Martin Luther King addresses the legality of Jim Crow laws and how the similarities with Hitler's Germany. Quote, we can never forget everything Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was, quote, illegal. That's an important distinction these days, especially as Donald Trump seeks to cloak his policy of what he is doing on the border, detaining children, detaining families, denying asylum under the legal code. Of course, that is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. King wrote his letter on April 16th, 1963. And writing a letter was the form he could use to communicate while he was in jail. But I'm so awestruck still every time I read this speech, every time I listen to this speech by his talent and his gift and to be able to write such a historically important piece of work literally from jail. The passage that I keep going back to just because it's the eternal question of the civil rights movement that I have considered having grown up in the Deep South as a white Southerner, 
the question of the so-called white moderate. My Christian and Jewish brothers, first I must, must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises a Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow to social progress. We also wanted to listen to Where Do We Go From Here?, from a call to conscience, Martin Luther King Jr.'s own words. No remembrance of Martin Luther King Jr. would be complete without listening to his famous I Have a Dream speech. And every time I listen to it, it gives me the chills. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. 
King was brilliant to take the founder's words and call people into action, telling Americans that if you respect the sanctity of our founding father's words, of our founding documents, then we, we must abide by it. It's also worth remembering that this was a moment when King was seeking to galvanize and encourage supporters who had become discouraged over a long, dangerous fight. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And then the Reverend's final address, I've been to the mountaintop. Reverend King delivered this address in Memphis, Tennessee, April 3rd, 1968. He was there supporting striking garbage workers in Memphis who labored under some of the most inhumane conditions we can imagine. And it's hard to imagine their plight in this day and age. And Martin Luther King was there. And even in this final speech, Reverend King held us accountable for the founding words. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, 
somewhere I read, of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read, that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. And so Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. deserves the final word today and always. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.